Hello and welcome to the week five edition of Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Samini. I cover the Jets for ESPN. Hope everyone enjoyed their bye week. I know I did. I actually spent a Sunday morning on the golf course with my son. I can't even remember the last time I played golf on a Sunday. Um, football does not allow such uh, leisure activities. And uh, I can tell you our scores weren't great, but it was fun just to get out there, knock the ball around. And there was no breaking jet news during our round. I have a, a knack of whenever I play golf, which is not often, there's always some breaking jet news. A year ago, I was playing by myself, and they traded Bridgewater to the Saints, and I ended up writing a story on my phone on the third tee at the Spring Lake Golf Club on Long Island. So it was peaceful, and it was good, and now we're back to football, and we have a great show. In our second quarter, our guest will be Mike Greenberg, the host of ESPN's Get Up, and a devout Jets fan, and I'm really looking forward to that. In our third quarter, we'll do Twitter mail, and in the fourth quarter, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to actually rank my top five all-time greatest Jets games that I've covered. But before we get into all that stuff, let's get back to this season. You know you know the deal. 0-3, the Jets are at Philly this week, and the prevailing storyline this week is going to be Sam Darnold with his mono situation. You know, I think it was his hope and the hope of the team that he'd be ready to play this week. That's what they were shooting for. And then on Monday comes the news that he's only been partially cleared only for non-contact stuff, no contact drills yet. And uh, so it is a major question mark as the Jets get ready for the Eagles. I'm no doctor, uh, but I've always thought that the Week 5 Eagles scenario was a little bit on the ambitious side. At the time of the diagnosis, I actually wrote that Week 7 against the Patriots seemed more realistic based on people I was talking to. And my gut tells me that he will not play this week. I'm not even sure he's going to play next week against Dallas. So this is, it's a very individual based thing with mono. You just don't know his spleen is still enlarged and that's dangerous. So if he takes a hit to the midsection in the worst case scenario, that could be fatal. And so my feeling is if there's even a 1% shred of doubt about his health, you absolutely sit him down. His health and, and, and personal well-being is certainly more important than a football game. So I, I think it's going to be another week of Luke Falk at quarterback, which frankly is kind of a bummer. I, I was talking to a lot of players after the New England game in the locker room, and they were down about the game and being 0-3. But the one thing they were wrapping their arms around was the fact that they were they thought there was a good chance that Darnold would be back Um for the for the Eagles game, and so that may not be the case, and so I know that's going to send a just a a real down vibe in the locker room. So it'll be up to Adam Gase to try to rally this team a little bit. Uh, looking at the Eagles and Falk, look, I don't want to pick on Luke Falk here, but the fact is he's been the quarterback for twenty one complete drives, and he has not registered a single point. Now, when I say complete, I have to qualify that because he entered the game for Trevor Simeon against the Browns, and he completed a drive that ended in a field goal. So, yeah, you know, so technically, yeah, he led them to three points, but in the 21 drives he started and completed, the Jets have not scored with Luke Falk at quarterback, which is absolutely mind-blowing. And you look at this matchup, you know, in a better situation, I think the Jets would actually be very competitive in this game because there are some favorable matchups. The Eagles, you saw it against the Packers. They're, they're becoming kind of a run-oriented team. 
Howard had three rushing touchdowns, and I think we, I don't know this for sure, but I think the Jets have a pretty good rushing defense. They haven't been really tested because their first three opponents came out and really were just throwing the ball on their secondary. But I think in a smash mouth, line of scrimmage type of game, the Jets would actually hold up pretty well. Now, the one caveat is I don't think CJ Mosley is going to play this week, but even without him, I think they could win that type of game. If the Eagles want to play that way, uh, and when the Eagles throw it, they've been plagued by drops. They lead the league with a, a, a league high eleven dropped passes. Uh, the Eagles are banged up at corner. I mean, they are just decimated. You know, they they just signed Orlando Skadrick. There's been talk that they're going to trade for Jalen Ramsey. You would think this would be a Robbie Anderson potential breakout game, maybe against those corners. The Eagles are only one of six teams to trail by 10 points or more in every game. So you're talking about a team that does suffer some mental lapses. They don't get off to good starts either. So it's a vulnerable team. But I just, man, I just can't see the Jets winning this game. I just don't think you can press the on button with their offense and expect them to go out and score points. They have scored one offensive touchdown in three games, and that is is historic. They've never started a season that way. And we're talking about some really bad jet offenses in history. And I also question whether this offensive line has found some sort of magic elixir during the bye week. And the Eagles, even though their pass rush has not been up to par, they still have Fletcher Cox and guys like that. And so I I still think the jet offensive line is going to have some issues. And the Jets, of course, we know are not a fast starting team. They fall behind that pass rush in Philly will be able to uh, really get fueled up and tee off on the Jets. So I, I do not see the Jets winning this game. I think it'll be somewhat competitive. And let me just throw out this stat. I don't know what it means, but it's a historical thing. In the all-time series against the Eagles, and this just blows my mind, the Jets are 0-10. They've never beaten the Eagles. I don't think it'll happen on Sunday. That is the end of the first quarter. And welcome to the second quarter. I'd like to welcome in our special guest this week. He's the best-selling author. He's the former radio host of the iconic Mike and Mike radio show. And he's the current host of ESPN's Get Up Every Morning. And last but not least, a diehard Jets fan. Please welcome Mike Greenberg. Mike, thanks for being with us. Well, I'll correct you on one thing. Being a Jet fan is is last, and it is most definitely least. Um, (laughs) of, Of the things you just named... Um, there is no doubt that both literally and figuratively that one comes last and least. Well, it's been a tough start, 0-3. Are you okay? I mean, how are you handling this really tough start? I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed the bye week. I mean, can we <laughs> sign up for more of those? It was such a pleasure to sit with my son and watch the Red Zone channel and just see all these other teams and the things they're doing. Honestly, Rich, and you and I have talked over the years, this has been – it's almost like I'm numb because, like, the things that have happened are just surreal. Right. If the Jets were healthy and they were bad, if they were healthy and this bad, it would be stunning. Let's start with that. They would never have been this bad if they were healthy. They made two enormous acquisitions in the offseason. And, frankly, I think both of them were really good ideas. Le'Veon Bell, mm-hmm. who I give him credit, I think he's a little self-great. And I loved what he said after the third game. And then C.J. Mosley, who, for the three quarters of a game in which we had him, looked to be not only the best defensive player the Jets had, 
but a difference maker. Like, the whole defense was completely different when he went out with an injury. But, of course, we spent whatever it was, you would know the money, $50 million, Mm -hmm. or whatever it was on this guy, and he immediately gets hurt, which is just very jet-like. And as a consequence, he's given us next to nothing. Uh, And then Donald gets mono, and so Le'Veon Bell has no chance to give us anything. So it's almost like you can't even really be mad, and I know a lot of Jet fans are very down on the coach right now, but to be honest with you, I'm not exactly sure what you're expecting from him. You, you could take the starting quarterback and the backup quarterback off of any team in the National Football League, including the Patriots, the Chiefs, the Rams, whoever you want to name, and they would have no chance. So the Jets have no chance. When you're playing Luke Falk, whether you're in Foxborough or anywhere else, you have no chance. So, unfortunately, a year that I approached with some promise and excitement mm-hmm. has turned into a year where we'll just see what we have in Darnold. If they do, if, whenever does he come back, um, if, if he is able to develop under the tutelage of this quarterback whisperer of a head coach with Le'Veon Bell as an option and start developing into the kind of quarterback that you can eventually win because of, then it won't have been a season totally for naught. But it certainly has been, and I have a feeling is going to be, an extremely disappointing year relative to what I was hoping before it started. So you're giving Gase a pass, even though they've scored one offensive touchdown in three games, 105 total yards against the Patriots, which uh, you know was just, to me, maybe the most inept offensive performance I've ever covered in 30 years on the beat. So you're, you're giving them a little bit of a slide right now because of the injuries. I will. And, and, and look, it was, that was the worst offensive game I've ever seen anyone play. I forget about the Jets. Right. The, the Patriots could have punted on first down that whole game and still would easily have won. Um, so it was, it was hideous, but I guess what I'm saying is at minimum, I think you have to save the jury. I don't know what it is you're expecting him to do when he's down to him. Of all the moves, look, Mike McCagnan was obviously an absolutely terrible general manager, and he left the Jets in a terrible position. And one of the primary ways in which he did is there's a lack of depth. They just have nowhere to go in the case of injury. But some of these were so predictable. Rich, and I, I can't remember now if I sent you a note when they did it or not, but I cannot believe they signed Quincy Anunua to that contract. Quincy Nunn was always hurt. There was never any – to depend upon him to be a big part of your offense this year was ridiculous. He's always hurt. Um, and so the, the, I'm willing to give Gaze a pass to the idea that Darnold gets mono. No one sees that coming. I, I was actually relieved to hear Darnold say that he wasn't feeling well the first week because that was the one time everyone was theoretically healthy and the offense looked bad, and maybe at least part of it was that Darnold was not feeling right um, and didn't realize at the time that he had mononucleosis. You know, and then Trevor Simeon's ankle snaps early in the second game, and at that point I think it's almost impossible to fairly judge the coach. So let's see what happens as the season goes on. So would I describe myself as underwhelmed to this point? Yeah, I'm underwhelmed. But I'm, I'm not going to sit here and yell and scream about the coach because I just don't think he's really had a fair indication of what he's capable of. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of 05 with the quarterback. Surely you remember that when Chad, against the Jaguars, Chad Pennington's shoulder got wrecked, and then literally like a quarter later, Jay Fiedler blows out his shoulder, and the Jets are down to their third-string quarterback. So this seems to be a recurring, <laughs> recurring theme in, in Jet history. 
it's so depressing. And look, the thing with with Darnold, I mean, what are you going to say? You know, he didn't get hurt. He's not mono, and so is that better? I don't even I don't know what's better and what's not. Um, ideally, he's going to come back relatively soon, and and can start to play. And again, I, I think the season is hopelessly lost. Um, so I do not believe that things like playoff berths and things like that are in the conversation anymore. Um, I, I said all along, I thought the Jets were going to make the playoffs this year, but that they absolutely had to beat Buffalo in week one to do it. And having watched the Bills this past Sunday go toe-to-toe with the Patriots, they're just better than the Jets. There's no two ways yeah. about it. The Bills are good. I think the Bills have a chance to make the playoffs. You could look at it one of two ways. They're the third best team in the AFC East, or they're the worst team that's trying to win. That's, that's the way I would describe the Jets in their division right now, and it's very depressing. I, I don't think they have any chance to make the playoffs, and once they lose to Philly and Dallas, there won't be any conversation about that anymore. You know, when I brought this up, Rich, and you tell me what you think of this, I brought it up when right after the Cleveland game, you know, should the Jets give some consideration? I'm not advocating. I'm asking the question. Give some consideration to trading Le'Veon Bell. As, as, as the time goes by, what, what, could you, what could you get for him? That's my question. What could you get for him? Well, that's a, it's an interesting point. We know that Gase wasn't totally enamored of the idea in, in March when they signed Bell. I think he's warm to him because he uses him so much now. But there's the next year's salary is fully guaranteed. I think it's about 12 or 13 million. So whichever team, you know, they'd have to pick up that freight, you know, and pay 12 or 13 million for uh, like a 28 year old running back next year. So the contract might be a little bit difficult to move, but we know in the NFL now contracts can be moved. I mean, we've seen it with Antonio Brown and others. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility. It would just totally. Man, it would just take out their most effective offensive weapon for the boy. They'd be really hard to watch for the for the last uh, eight or nine games. Well, so the reason I ask the question though is the Jets are building for the future, and and frankly, they're building for a future that Le'Veon Bell is not going to be a part of. Like Le'Veon Bell, you just said it; he's twenty eight years old. Um, by the time the Jets are are making a run in the Super Bowl, he's going to reach that point in a, in a running back's career where they're no longer the player they once were. I love them. Again, I'm, this is not in any way meant to sound or to be a knock on Le'Veon Bell. I, I don't think he could have handled the situation any better than he's been handling it, either on or off the field. Um, I just wonder if at some point having Le'Veon Bell on a team that is 1-7 or whatever it is the Jets are going to be at that point is kind of like having really, really good tires on a car that doesn't have an engine. It's just a waste of time. You could shut him down for the year because to get him hurt at that point would make no sense. So I, I don't know. It, it just was a thought that ran through my mind. If you could get a bunch of really high draft picks for him, Mike McCadden left the cupboard so bare. The Jets needs to need a ton of players. And there's one other thing I feel like I've learned from this, Rich, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this because mm-hmm. you're living it day in and day out for 30 years, not just for the Jets but with any team. The reason the Patriots have been so good, first and foremost, obviously, is the quarterback, right? So they hit struck gold with him, and he's right. the best there's ever been. No that, that goes without saying. But next, they don't have three great players. They have 30 good ones. And I think that's the way to be a good NFL team. With as much injury as there is and everything else, you spend all this money on C.J. Mosley, and as great as he is, he's not doing you any good when he gets hurt week one. 
the, the Jets, you need to have a whole bunch of good players. And that's what we need to start getting. So or trading, I'm just, I'm just making this up, getting a bunch of second and third round picks that can actually play as opposed to the kind that the previous general manager was drafted. Well, that's, you know, it's an interesting thought. Like, what if they're one and six at the trading deadline? Would you be in favor of them moving guys like Leonard Williams and Robbie Anderson? Look, I mean, it would be awful. And, and, but I guess I would. Like, what do you think? Like, what is the point of having those guys? If you, you can finish last with them or finish last without them, if there's a whole bunch that you can get in return for them, in the long run, it probably does make sense to make moves like that. It will make watching the second half of the season horrific. Right. But frankly, if you're 0-6, how good is the second half of the season going to be anyway? Mm-hmm. A very good thing to be. Look, at the end, I hate to say this because I think tanking is a scourge. It's the worst thing in sports. But if you have a very high draft pick in a year where there are teams that want quarterbacks and you don't need one, then that's a very valuable thing to be because you can trade that pick for a bunch of guys and a bunch of picks and a bunch of good stuff. So... In the long run, once the season is hopelessly gone, you're kind of better off being as bad as you can be. And I hate to say it, but it is the reality of the way the sport is structured. So, Greeny, I'd like to walk it back about 30 or 40 years, and and just I'm really curious to know how you became such a passionate Jet fan. We knew you grew up in New York. You graduated from Stuyvesant High right here in the city. But where did it begin? How did it begin? I I came by it, honestly, um, Rich, in in the household in which I was raised, in Greenwich Village, in, in, in Lower Manhattan, uh, sports was the currency of every conversation. Both of my parents were passionate sports fans, crazy sports fans, um, and in particular of the Jets. I have often said, only half-jokingly, that my mother would have left my father for Joe Namath, and my father would have applauded that. <laughs> um, we, we, we were not a religious household, but we believed in Joe Namath, and his greatness was just a little bit before my time. So I was raised, we had season tickets all the way upstairs in Chase Stadium, and I would go with my dad every week to the Jet games. Um, and, and my father always said, a real fan stays to the very end, no matter how bad the team is and how bad the game is. So I sat through a lot in the 70s, a really terrible Jets football, with watching guys like Carl Barzalowskis and, and um, Al Woodall and Richard Castor, and then ultimately, you know, they got Todd, and they had a couple of good years there. The early 80s, the, the 81 Jets remain my favorite team in the history of sports. Uh, they, they were the first team that ever made the playoffs in my conscious lifetime. That was the year they lost to Buffalo on the interception that Todd threw right. at the very end of the game. But I loved that team with Klecko and Castano and all of those guys and that offensive line, Marvin Powell and Chris Ward and, um, and then the next year when they made the run to the AFC Championship game where they ultimately lost in the A.J. Dewey game where, where the Dolphins watered down the field intentionally, um, the, the, uh, the, the, my everlasting memory of that was when that playoff run got started. And for those in, who are listening to us who don't know this, that was a strike year. So they played an additional playoff game. So the Jets won two playoff games before they went to Miami. They went to Cincinnati, and Freeman McNeil went crazy and had a right. huge day. And they won that game. And then they went to Los Angeles to play the Raiders. And Lance Mell intercepted Jim Plunkett twice in the fourth quarter, and they won that game. So when the Jets made that run, we were a very superstitious family. So there's a restaurant called Pete's Tavern on Irving Place in the city that we liked. 
And when the Jets started making a run to the playoffs, we decided it was good luck that we were eating there because we ate there after one good game. So we ate there every night. <laughs> My family literally ate there and ordered the same thing every night through that entire playoff run. I had spaghetti with sausages. I was 15 years old from Pete's Tavern literally every night while the Jets went on that playoff run. So that was where it began. And, and um, you know, you never lose that. And, and it has caused me an enormous amount of angst. But I am, I am proud to say uh, that I've passed it on to my kids. Um, I wanted to name my son. My wife, Stacy and I had a, a dispute. I wanted to name my son Chad Lavernius Greenberg at the time that he was born <laughs> in 2002. Right. Um, his, name, his name is Stephen because I was outvoted on that one, one-to-one. Right. Uh, but both he and my daughter, Nikki, are, are big fans of the Jets. And, you know, we watch the games together for better or worse. And lately it's been a lot of worse. But someday it's going to be for the better. I, I just want to have some fun here for a second. Uh, I want to do a, a, a jet-related word association. So I'm going to say a name or something, and you just say the first thing that pops into your head, if you don't mind. My, I think this will sure. be kind of fun to do here. So I'll be drawing stuff from all different eras. So just whatever pops into Mike Greenberg's head, just fire it away. Uh, ready? Okay. All right, we're going to go yeah. uh, Tim Tebow. Well, you don't want just want one word, right? You want me to give you a whole thought? <laughs> give me a thought. That was a terribly thought-out decision by the Jets and a terrible move. And honestly, I feel bad for Tim Tebow. Um, the, the, the Jets acquired Tim Tebow for a variety of reasons. You were inside this more than I was. Maybe Rex wanted to run some more Wildcat. I will always believe it's because the owner was enamored of star quarterbacks and, and liked the idea of Tebow and sort of liked a lot of the things that Tebow stood for, stands for. But whatever it is, Tim Tebow was coming off a year where, for better or worse in Denver, he won a lot of games. We saw it with our own eyes, right? Mm-hmm. I would like to have seen him to get a chance to play quarterback. And the Jets brought him in with no intention of doing that whatsoever. They fattened him up like a Christmas goose and turned him into a personal punt protector, which isn't even a thing. That doesn't even exist. They gave him a, a position on a football team that does not exist. Um, and, and, it, and I think it, it ruined whatever chance he ever had of playing again. So I, I kind of have always felt bad for him, and I've gotten to know him over the years. He works at ESPN now, yeah. and I, I think he's a very good guy. And so I thought that was ill-conceived and made no sense. I don't think it did Mark Sanchez any favors either. So in every conceivable way, I think that the Tebow thing was a huge mistake for the Jets. Yeah, you're right about Woody Johnson. I think he was smitten with the idea of Tebow and what he stood for. And also, if you remember, the Giants were coming off a Super Bowl, and I think the Jets were looking to make a little bit of a splash. And they splashed all right, you know. (laughs) But, uh, all right, let me get back to the thing. Okay, so we got Tebow. Uh, Next one, Midnight Miracle. The Midnight Miracle was a great game. And, And that, you know, it harkens back when you look at how terrible the Jets and the Dolphins are now. Um... You, you, it, you, it harkens back to a time when that was the greatest rivalry ever. Like the Jets and Dolphins, I'll give you the, my, my favorite Jet-Dolphin game, if you're asking me the first thing that comes to my mind. Right. The year that I mentioned before, which was the 81 Jets, the best win that year. What year did you start covering the Jets, Rich? 89, Joe Walton's last year. Okay, so this is before your time. Yeah. But you may remember the game. Jerome Barkham caught a touchdown to beat the Dolphins 16-15, that year, and that's when the Dolphins were really good. That was pre-Marino, but that was the, the Woodley Dolphins that, that were to the Super Bowl either the year before or something like that. They were a good team, and it was an arch rivalry, and the Jets beat them, and I, can, I still consider that one of my two or three favorite wins the Jets have ever had. So it reminds you that the Jets-Dolphins 
was and maybe someday will be again as good a rivalry as the old AFL ever produced. Um, and I hope that, uh, that it, 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 it sort of comes back to that because the Jets Dolphins this year will be probably a competition for the first pick in the draft. And that's a pretty depressing state of affairs. Yeah. They actually could be Owen. Both teams could be Owen seven going into that game. Uh, okay. Uh, Belichick. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the, you know the, the HC of the NYJ thing, look, I, I've sort of made peace with that over the years. Like, I feel like there was just a lot going on then, and, 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 and you were there, I wasn't. So, you know, I think people sometimes, because I associate myself as a Jets fan, and I've been very open about that over the many years I did Mike and Mike and all of that, that people think I have some insight into what's going on up there, like I cover the team, and I really don't. So I don't really know that I'll ever fully understand all the stuff that was going on, but obviously that was after Leon has died. The ownership situation was in a state of, of flux. That was uncertain. It felt um, somewhat unstable. I think that the relationship between Belichick and Marcel was tenuous, to say the least. I've heard unbelievable stories about that from Keyshawn Johnson, who was on the team, among others, mm-hmm. at the time that this was happening. So... I, I've come to I've come to terms with that. Like, mm-hmm. it's impossible to be a Jet fan and not think to yourself that should be us. You know that 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 should have happened to us. But I've and 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 part of you wants to hate Belichick for it. Um, but I've sort of over the years come to terms with understanding why he did what he did. And you know, while I I have never and will never root for his team to win a football game. I think if you don't admire what he's accomplished up there, then you just don't admire greatness in sports. So that's sort of the way I think of him and the way I look at that situation. But, look, obviously, I don't know that it would have turned into what it has turned into up there, but Tom Brady was the 199th pick in the draft. The Jets would have had ample opportunity to choose him, um, just as Brady did, I mean, as, as, uh, as the Patriots did. So I, I, it's impossible not to think every now and again about what might have been. Christian Hackenberg. <laughs> that's a perfect example of, 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 I mean, that's one of the worst draft picks in history, right? Uh, yes, I mean, it's, that could be documented. On this, the, now, not just Jet history. I mean, like the history of any sport. They took a quarterback. Um, they traded up to get him, right? They traded up in the second round to take a quarterback who they were afraid to put in the games in the preseason. He wasn't good enough to play an exhibition game. And when last seen, I think he wasn't good enough to play in an experimental league whose name I don't even remember that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> yes, like he literally couldn't play at all. And it, he is the perfect symbol of Mike McCagnon's just total incompetence as the general manager of the Jets. And, and it, it's, uh, so that's wor- the worst. I mean, I, I, that, that, that is as bad a draft pick, about as bad a draft pick as has ever been because if you look back over the history of other bad picks, particularly those the Jets have made, injury has played a significant role in some of them. Mm-hmm. Like, there was no injury in this. Christian Hackenberg just couldn't play. Right. And the Jets general manager traded up to take him in the second round. Yeah, actually, I don't think they traded up, but, but I don't think that lessened, I don't think that lessens the pain any, and because he was like a middle of the second round pick. And for him to not yeah. even play one NFL down is just beyond comprehension. I mean, it's really, it's one for the My ages. Bad, but uh, the point remains. Yeah. No, absolutely. All right, let me get last end with this one. Butt fumble. Huh. Well, you know, I work with Mark Sanchez now. 
He's a very good guy. He is a good guy. You covered him. You know, he's, he's a man. Yeah. And it's a shame that certainly everywhere outside of Jet Country, um, that's what he's best, best known for. Mm-hmm. And, and I understand that. But I think it is worth pointing out that Mark Sanchez won as the starting quarterback and was not exclusively carried to, but actually won some of the most significant games in Jets history. Like, we don't have that many great wins. So what we do have um, is we have we beat Peyton Manning in Indianapolis in what uh, parenthetically proved to be his last ever game in Indianapolis. We beat Tom Brady in Foxborough to go to the AFC Championship game. Mark Sanchez did that. I saw it. Well, I watched it with my own eyes. And he played well in those games. Yes, those were teams that were led by their defense. And yes, this ground. He made some big plays. He made that throw to Brown in order to set up the field goal that won the game against the Colts. He made big plays in a game against – what did we win that game in New England? 28-21, right? We scored 28 yeah, points. Yeah, yeah. Like, he, he played well. So, so Sanchez, I think, deserves – to be remembered a little better than he is by Jet fans. I understand that, that he will always be remembered by everybody else for the butt fumble, but I think he deserves to be remembered a little more fondly and with a little more respect than that by fans of the Jets. I really do. He, he, he won four road playoff games for the Jets, and there's not too many guys, not too many quarterbacks in Jet history that have accomplished more than that, just taking that at its face value. He's not the best Jet quarterback since Namath. But he, he did win more playoff games than any Jet quarterback since Namath, and that has to be that has to count for something. Yeah, he played well in all those playoff games too. And and if if the defense had showed up in in the Pittsburgh championship game, Mark Sanchez could have been a Super Bowl quarterback. I mean, it wasn't his fault. Absolutely. It wasn't his fault. They were down. What were they down? Like twenty points at halftime or something like that. Uh, yeah, certainly was not his fault in that case. So um, I didn't mean that to game to me. That game will always be the Jets. The week before was our Super Bowl. Mm. You know, going to Foxborough after what had happened that season, what was the score, like 45-3 or whatever the, yeah. the Monday night game was that season where they just got shellacked and embarrassed, that was the Jets' Super Bowl. And, and beating the Patriots, look, I'm not old enough to have seen Super Bowl three. So in my lifetime, beating Brady and Belichick in Foxborough in a playoff game is the single best win the Jets have had. That is the number one best win the Jets have had in my lifetime. So the quarterback of that team deserves to be remembered more fondly than I think Sanchez generally is remembered. Without question, that is the number one post-Super Bowl three win. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I didn't mean to cut. I, I brought up some old wounds here, uh, Mike. So, I, I mean, I brought up some stuff. and But I appreciate your the emotion. I could just feel the passion coming through. And, well, I mean, you bleed it, man. You, you totally bleed it. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Like, like I've, I've dedicated my entire life, essentially, professionally speaking, to covering sports. And, and it is be- I mean, it's because of my family, first and foremost. It is sport- those of us who are sports fans, you know, I, 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 I shouldn't say this as though it's a blanket statement. At least for me, like, it's, it's, about, it's about family. It's about the fact that I grew up with this stuff, and this is what we talked about, and this is what we thought about and worried about. You know, and my dad, who loved the Jets, like, you know, he's no longer with us. And, and my big, one of my, honestly, my biggest regrets in life is that I will never get a chance to do something I always 
have said I wanted to do, which was sit next to my father and watch the Jets play in the Super Bowl. I never got to do it, um, and it's a shame. Um, but, you know, so this stuff, is, it's not about the Jets. It's not about the team. It's not about the franchise. It's about me. It's about us. It's about our lives and, and, and the role that being a fan of this team has played in that. And, and there's no question that the, the Jets are more than anything else the reason that I, you know, chose to go into covering sports for my for my career. This, this, that's what sort of shaped me as a fan into being interested enough in this stuff to actually do it for a living every single day. Uh, that and the Knicks. I was also a big fan of the Knicks, and don't get me started on that one. Oh, that's a because um, that's a whole other set of problems. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you know, so that's the stuff matters. Like it, it, it matters in, in ways that. Um, you know, I wrote a book. I wrote a book called "Why My Wife Thinks I'm an Idiot," and in that book, I wrote that um, the beauty of sports. To explain the beauty of sports is that there is nothing in the world better than investing everything into something that means nothing, and that's sort of what it's like. I think to be a fan of sports, like this stuff doesn't actually impact my life in any way. I have a you know a healthy family and a good job, and and all all is fine, um, and yet it means everything, and that's you know. I think that's why those of us who love this stuff love it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you speak for many Jet fans, and hopefully someday, maybe not too far in the in the future, you get to sit at the Super Bowl with your son watching the Jets play, and uh, you know that would be uh, quite a moment. You know that would be uh, the pinnacle, I guess. <laughs> I hope. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping for it. I'm not counting on it, but yeah, I'm hoping for it. Yeah, you know the way the Jets are going now, you, you might be sitting with your grandkids, you know, and your son at at, at the at the Super Bowl. <laughs> we can put together a whole. I mean, there's, there are a lot of generations in my family that have not yet been born that will be watching the Jets the next time they play in the Super Bowl. I mean, it's it's so depressing. It's kind of hard to put into words. Well, well, you do a great job of it, and I know Jet fans appreciate it, and I appreciate you coming on, Mike. This uh, Really, really thank you so much, and good luck the rest of the way this season. Hopefully they'll bring you some joy, and if not, we'll be talking about them come draft time. Take care, Rich. And welcome back. This is The Blind Side, where you guys could blindside me with some questions on Twitter. A good bunch of questions I picked out this week. <laughs> a lot of uh, Jet fans are looking for answers. And let's start off with Al- at Alessandro B 1187 with a backup quarterback and a great running back. In the studies into how much more play action than straight dropbacks are more effective, why are the Jets only running play action about three times per game? Uh, really good question. I, I actually think it's about four or five times a game, but it's still low. And you're right with a guy like Le'Veon Bell. In theory, it should open up play action. But the problem is, Alessandro, when you're in second and 12 and second and nine situations and third and 10, it's really hard to sell play action because teams know you're throwing the ball. So that is one of the reasons why they haven't done it. Next question from at dclance889. Why isn't Joe Douglas being more active in the trade market, especially for a playmaker? Their wide receivers outside of Crowder are terrible. Well, uh, Clance, uh, I'm going to disagree with you there. I don't think Robbie Anderson is terrible. In fact, here, here's a stat. Let me throw a little knowledge at you. According to NFL Next Gen Stats, which they come up with some great ones, the Jets have actually had the highest percentage of passes attempted to open receivers in the league. 
Now, an open receiver, according to NextGen, is a receiver who was at least three yards away from the closest defender. So the Jets are getting a high percentage of open receivers. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of those passes are shorter passes that really aren't making an impact. And the thing with Joe Douglas is he has made trades. He has been active. They got Harrison, Alex Lewis, Demarius Thomas, which hasn't worked out so well. Uh, and the trade deadline is October 29th after uh, right at the midpoint of the season. So there is time. And I do think he'll be active, although I think he's probably at this rate going to be a seller, not a buyer. Next question from at sports underscore phi three nd. Do you think if Gase doesn't have more accountability for his own shortcomings as a coach, that he'll lose the players' trust like he did in Miami if he continues to talk about the players publicly in the press? I am going to disagree a little bit there, sports, because you know he did have a couple of occasions where he was critical of the players. And, you know, as in the media, we appreciate the honesty. We, we do because it gives us a better understanding of what's happening with the team. Although I will agree with you. I mean, he does have to be careful when you, when you're criticizing players, you have to put yourselves in there too. You have to say the coaching needs to be better. He did that earlier this week on Monday. He talked in, in, in great detail about what he has to do as a play caller to be better. So that's good. But you're right. There have been a couple of times where he's, he's kind of walked out on that very, that very precarious ledge. You don't want to criticize players too much because let me tell you, they know it. They read it on social media and they talk about it in the locker room and it is a slippery slope. So he does have to be careful with that. Next question at David Forte. What changes, if any, have been made to address the offensive line? It would be nice to get Bell a few running lanes. No doubt about that. David, uh, offensive line, a major issue. Um, and the crazy thing about the Bell situation, and I checked with the stats on this, they're not even seeing a lot of eight-man fronts. Teams are playing them straight up, and they still can't block. So that's concerning. I think Gase this week put the starters on alert. He suggested that could changes could be coming. So I think guys like Jonathan Harrison, Alex Lewis, and Tom Compton are all experienced backups. They could be somehow factored into the game plan this week. I think they need to use more two tight end formations. They've only done it about 20% of the time. Put an extra tight end in pass protection. It'll help the offensive line. And also run some more of those outside zone stretch plays. I mean, this is supposed to be part of the offense. We really haven't seen that much of it yet. I'd like to see Le'Veon on those plays because I think it plays to his strengths. He can pick and choose his holes and cut back. I'd like to see more of those. How about some misdirection? Something just to add a little juice into this running game because the offensive line definitely needs to get better. And uh, last question comes from uh, a loyal follower. I appreciate the questions. He's always into it. Uh, At Ian Damon 3, if the Jets are out of contention in a few weeks, what is the best plan for next year? Start trading now and getting draft picks? Love the podcast, Rich. Had to throw that one in there, Ian. Thank you for the compliment. And, uh, yeah, they're going to be out of contention. They're probably going to be two and six or one and seven at the, at the trading deadline. So yeah, I wrote this in Sunday's column. I think they have to strongly consider trading Leonard Williams if they get a good offer. Uh, he's in the last year of his contract. Robbie Anderson's in the same situation, although I tend to keep Robbie because I think there's some upside there that we haven't seen yet. But, uh, 
let me just put it this way. The, the talk going into that trading deadline week will be very intense with the Jets. I think they will be looking. Joe Douglas wants to put his stamp on this team. He wants to accumulate draft capital for next year to get this thing turned around. I think that's going to be a hot story going into that last week in October. And that is the end of the third quarter. And welcome to the fourth quarter. This is the Red Zone. I get to uh, freelance a little bit here every week. And this week, here's what I'd like to do. The NFL is releasing their 100th, 100 greatest games in, you know, in conjunction with the 100 year anniversary of the league. And you're, you're starting to see all this, this countdown. And the Jets have actually showed up in a few games. So I want to do my top five greatest games that I've covered as a Jets writer. Uh, a couple of uh, qualifiers, you know, we're, I'm only going back to 89 covering the Jets. And also my list may be a little different than your routine list because, I, you know, I'm, I'm making my picks based on some personal thoughts and I'm looking at it through the eyes of a reporter. So it may be a little bit different than what you have in mind, but bear with me. Here are my top five great. And when I say greatest, I'm focusing on the positives. There are certainly a number of very memorable jet games that I'm not going to include in this list. You know what they are. Fake spike, you know, games like that, the butt fumble. I'm not going to go there. They are certainly memorable. I'm going to do a victory type game. So these are the one, these are my top five greatest jet games at number five, the 09, uh, wild card game at San Diego. Darrell Revis, uh, was magnificent in that game. The Jets pull off the road upset with Mark Sanchez at quarterback. Just remember how they stopped Ladanian Tomlinson in that game. Did not think they would win that game. And the thing that I remember about that, you know, Brian Schottenheimer was the offensive coordinator. His father, Marty, of course, was a longtime coach in San Diego, got fired unceremoniously. And so after the game, Rex Ryan gave the game ball to Brian Schottenheimer in honor of his dad. And and Brian got choked up, really, really got choked up after the game. I know that meant so much to him. So that's my number five game. Like I said, I'm going to have some personal reflections on some of these games. Number four. 1998 at Buffalo, the Jets clinched the division title, their first title uh, championship, division championship since the merger in 1970. Um, it was Parcells and Vinny and Curtis Martin. And the thing, the, the one snapshot I have from that game was actually what happened after the game. I walked in the locker room and I saw Mo Lewis standing on a table it looked like he was partying at a dance club. He was dancing on a table. He was wearing a, a championship, division championship cap, and he just had the biggest smile on his face. And to me, it was symbolic because for years, Mo Lewis was kind of the symbol of the down years. He was always a sourpuss you know, during the Kotai years. The losing really got to him, and it really embittered him. He was not a fun person to be around. And then to walk into that room and just see – the absolute joy in his face was really something that I'll always remember. And so that's why it's my number four game. My number three game is actually probably on the top of a lot of people's lists. This is a game that Mike Greenberg referred to in our conversation. Uh, the Jets win at New England in the 2010 playoffs. Only six weeks earlier, they got smacked 45 to three. They go up to Foxborough. They're a nine and a half point underdog and they just played out of their mind. Everybody played a great game. But the thing I'll always take away was the night before the game, uh, it, it got out on social media that Dennis Bird had, had flown in from 
Oklahoma. Of course, Dennis, the, you know, with the uh, broken neck in 1992, really had been reclusive for many years, but he decided to make a public appearance. He spoke to the team the night before the game, uh, gave this really inspirational speech. They brought out his jersey for the coin toss, the jersey that was cut off his body when he broke his neck in that game in 92. They hung it in the locker room. It was really, really emotional. And I remember I called Dennis in his hotel room the morning of the game, and we talked and we agreed to meet in one of the luxury boxes at Gillette Stadium. So I got there really early for the game. I sat with Dennis for about 20 minutes before the game and he was telling me about his speech. He was actually showing me his bullet points on his BlackBerry about what he told the team. And then he was summoned to the press box to, to talk to the media. And we had to walk about 100, 150 feet from his box to the press box. And I'll never forget this. He asked me if I could guide him. He still wasn't walking great. And he put his hand on my left shoulder. And I walked, uh, we walked that distance into the press box. And I was kind of his guide. And it really sent chills down my spine. And they played an awesome, you know, the Jets played an awesome inspired game. And it really is, like Greeny said, their, their biggest win since Super Bowl three. Number two, the midnight miracle in the 2000 season. Crazy, crazy. They're down 30 to 7 with 12 seconds left in the third quarter. Testa Verde played unbelievable. Four TD passes in the fourth quarter. And, uh, I think I gained a lot of gray hairs that night because I was working for the Daily News and I had to I think I rewrote my story about four or five times and filed it about 1.15 a.m. when the game ended. And I was happy on a personal level for Jumbo Elliott who made that unbelievably improbable catch. I went, to, I don't know if many people know this. I actually went to high school with Jumbo. We grew up in the same town. We were in the Boy Scouts together and it, it really was heartwarming to see someone from my town, you know, do something like that. And he'll always be remembered for that. And my number one greatest game and maybe some people have forgotten about this game, but like I said, this is a personal thing for me. 1992, week 14 at Buffalo. The Jets were terrible. They were three and nine. They had close to 10 starters out for the game. They were, and I looked this up, they were a 17 and a half point underdog that day and they were facing the bills of Kelly, Reed, Thomas and Bruce Smith. It was a meaningless game on paper for the Jets and, but, but it happened a week after the Dennis Bird injury. And the team was utterly demoralized. Your, your season sucks. Your team sucks. And your, and your player is in the hospital paralyzed. But the night before the game, word got out that Dennis had moved his big toe in the hospital. And it just sent a surge of electricity through the team. They played an unbelievably inspired game. They won 24 to 17. And after the game, I walked into the locker room and they had a conference call. They put players on the call. And they talked to Dennis in his hospital room in New York. It was really a touching scene. And I'll never forget, I went up to a tight end after the game named Mark Boyer, who was basically a no-name tight end. And I said, Mark, you guys, nobody gave you a chance. I go, you guys were 17-point underdogs in this game. What do you think? And he gave me a quote that I'll never forget. He said, you can't put a point spread on the human spirit. And that always stuck with me all these years later. And that whole scene of a team that had no shot to win that game, winning that game 
for their teammate who was in the hospital paralyzed was really something that always stuck with me. So that's why it may not be your number one game, but is certainly my number one greatest game that I ever covered. And that's a wrap for this week's podcast, The Flight Deck. I want to thank our special guest, Mike Greenberg, for popping in and sharing some of his uh, strong opinions and deep, deep passion on the Jets and what they're going through this year. Uh, I Please subscribe to Flight Deck. You can get it wherever podcasts are found. I really appreciate the support. We'll have great guests and good stuff coming up throughout the year. And just remember, when in doubt, don't punt. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs>